What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Adam Wadden. Adam is a guy with a very diverse set of interests. He's a powerlifter, he's a musician, a podcast host, but he's also a software engineer, an educator, and an indie hacker. And he does each of these three things in concert. In 2016, Adam decided he was going to make a full-time living helping other developers build awesome software. And since then, he's done $2.5 million in sales of his books and courses. So Adam, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. I was just watching a live YouTube cast that you did earlier this week. I think it was a couple days ago. And you were trying to work on some sort of CSS issue, putting together a website using your latest framework. And it was really cool to watch because you had hundreds of people tuned in. And they were really just learning by watching you learn. They were watching you tinker with things and change your CSS to try to get your website to look exactly the way that you wanted it to look. And It was pretty obvious that you were enthusiastic about all of this. Do you think that being passionate about learning and really enjoying that process is required for being a good educator? Or do you think it's good enough just to like the teaching side of things? Good question. I think probably it helps to be excited about learning yourself, to be paying attention to the things that work for you. I've always been just a voracious learner, like my whole life. Anytime like I learn about some topic that interests me, I can't resist but to just like dive into every corner and find out every piece of information that exists about it on the entire internet. You know, my sort of personal obsession with learning definitely contributes to to my ability to, to teach topics for sure. Well, you've obviously learned a lot because today you are selling these books and courses that people love and that help many thousands of software engineers get better at their jobs. How did you first learn to code yourself? I have a couple different memories of like what my first programming experience was, but maybe that just goes to show that I've just been exposed to it in a couple different ways throughout my life. But when I was in school, I remember... Uh, This is like back in the era where like all schools had like Apple computers in like the classrooms, you know, you had like that, the three Mac computers in the whole school or whatever. We used to spend a lot of time messing around with like HyperCard and uh, HyperCard was probably one of the first environments that I learned how to like make a computer do things. So even when I was in like grade, probably like grade five, grade six, a couple other kids that were in my class with me i was in like a gifted program so i was surrounded by like a lot of a lot of smart people who had a a lot of you know different experiences with things but we'd be messing around with hypercard trying to make like little games where uh you'd be like navigating like moving characters around with the arrow keys and like you know opening doors with a space bar and learning how to do stuff like that And, and that was really fun so that was one of my early experiences of programming Another was when I was a kid, I was like super obsessed with pro wrestling. That was like my whole life when I was like eight, nine years old. I loved pro wrestling. And I would download these like wrestling emulator apps that weren't like games. They were just like text-based tools that would like programmatically generate the outcomes of different matches that you would set up and stuff like that. People used to use them to run like online role-playing like wrestling simulator sites so I would always be trying out all these different tools. And one day I stumbled across a tutorial on how to like build your own wrestling simulator with QBasic. 
So that kind of got me down this path of like learning QBasic. And uh, eventually I got obsessed with trying to learn how to build like an RPG engine with QBasic because there's all these cool tutorials about building different tiling engines and stuff. So I'd learn about some of that stuff. Oh, man. Um, then uh, eventually, like once I was in high school, we started actually having like computer programming classes offered in high school. So I did a bunch of computer programming there too, like learning some C. Uh, we did like languages like Turing and Pascal in different classes. Eventually we did some Java, some uh, one year it was like web focused. And uh, when I was in my early teens is when I got really excited about like building stuff on the web versus like compiling stuff with QBasic to make these little like, uh, you know, DOS based programs and stuff. But that's when I started learning HTML and trying to make websites and stuff and uh, eventually went to university for computer science, but actually only stayed for one semester and then dropped out because I just wanted to play in my band and uh, wasn't really enjoying the academic environment. Probably like five or six years later, I kind of like rekindled my excitement for programming because I hadn't done it at all in a while when I was uh, I opened a recording studio just like out of my house recording local bands. And the software that I used to record the bands is called Reaper, which is made by the guy who made Winamp back in the day. It's like a really, really hacker-friendly like uh, digital audio workstation. So you could write your own plugins in um, Python or even in C++. And I had a bunch of ideas for features that I wanted to add to the software to make like my life easier as an audio engineer. Through like IRC, I just kind of got hooked up with this guy who had been making plugins for it and was like a really talented C++ developer. And he helped me sort of set up a project in C++ to start writing my own plugins and kind of mentored me and answered my questions and stuff. So I started making plugins to simplify like drum editing or all sorts of interesting things with this, uh, with this tool. And when I was doing that, I started to it kind of rekindled my excitement for programming and reminded me how much I loved it because I hadn't done it in a few years and sort of forgot how enjoyable it was. And uh, it got to a point where I was having more fun just like extending this tool than I was actually recording bands and working on music stuff. So I went back to college for like a two-year program in software engineering just so that I could uh, get like a co-op position so I could get some experience and be able to get a job. And I did that when I was like 25 yeah, then I spent a couple of years working at agencies doing stuff. And then I started working on my own products. And here we are today. That is a long, winding story to how you learned how to code <laughs> with on periods and off periods, a lot of tinkering, a lot of formal learning as well. What do you think was the most transformative period where you really learned the fastest or you learned the most? I think probably in college. Um, and not necessarily because of what we learned in college, although the program like had a pretty good curriculum. It wasn't like a computer science curriculum. Like we did do stuff with algorithms and data structures and stuff, but we also had courses on software quality and automated testing and uh, lots of stuff that was a lot more like practical building software, not just like the math of computer science. That's when I like got really really excited about like software design because before college. It never really even dawned on me that like making code good was a thing. You know, it was just like, I have a computer. I want to make it do some things. These are the things I type that make it do that thing. And yes, it's creative and yes, it's fun. But I never really like 
noticed that there was an element of craftsmanship to it at all. It was just all about like getting the computer to do what I want. And that was like exciting enough. There was, you know, I didn't really think of any concept of like refactoring or like keeping code clean or like design, trying to come up with like solutions that were scalable or maintainable or, you know. So when I started to learn a little bit about some of that, those elements in school, that got me really excited and sent me down this path of, you know, reading a bunch of kind of classic software design books you know, in my memory, that's kind of the period where I remember just like really leveling up and uh, and getting better at this stuff, learning about TDD, learning about, you know, like reading Martin Fowler's refactoring book or like, I think the first book that I read that like really kind of answered some questions for me and um, kind of helped me was Agile Patterns, Principles and Practices in C Sharp uh, by Uncle Bob. So that was like a yeah, that was like a really exciting time that I remember just like devouring all this information, learning about polymorphism and object-oriented design and TDD and stuff like that. And yeah. I assume you're talking about your second stint in college because your first stint, you dropped out after only a semester. Yeah, what was it like making right. that decision? Was this like you following your heart to pursue your passion of being in a band or what was going on? Uh I just like, I think the problem for me was um, I was going to a university that was like a 40 minute drive away and I was living at home because I didn't want to, you know, accrue a bunch of debt living on campus or whatever. And because of that, I was driving to school, going to my classes, not really being around outside of class. So I wasn't really like meeting people or making friends. And I just had a hard time sort of getting absorbed into that sort of university environment. It was very much like a thing that I was doing on the side, whereas like my real group of friends was like still at home. None of those people were in school. We were doing music stuff together. It it was hard for me to kind of like let the university stuff like take over my life and like me feel like a university student. It just felt like this like annoying chore on the side of like my real life. So I just didn't put in the the effort to kind of get into it. I also think like the way the curriculum was structured was not really super fun either. In Canada, at least like we use university to talk about places where you go for a four-year degree and college where you go for like a two-year diploma. And so our colleges, I think are close to what you call community colleges in the States. And the the college curriculum was just so much more hands-on and practical. It was much more like an apprenticeship than it was like some sort of study. You know what I mean? And that just resonated with me a lot more. It was was so much more project-based and like making stuff and not just like, like when I was in university, we had exams where I would have to like write programs on paper with pencil. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Like full programs that were multiple pages long (laughs) and and they had to be right the first time. Um, And that was just not really for me. I like tinkering and like watching the things actually happen on the computer and kind of getting to experience the fruits of my labor. So who is that for? Like, why is that even a thing? I don't know. I think um, I think education around kind of teaching people to be software developers is pretty broken in a lot of ways in sort of those institutions. I know there's like a lot of improved versions of that. Like Lambda School is a really exciting initiative that I think is doing a good job teaching people to be developers in a practical and effective way. But sort of the old school university institutions I don't think do a very good job preparing people to actually be developers. I feel like to learn to be a software developer should be treated much more like learning to be like a carpenter or something like something where you actually get to learn from other people and actually do the job. Uh, Whereas universities tend to focus on a lot of the theoretical stuff that 
I mean, isn't necessarily preparing you for working in the field. They're preparing you for being a computer scientist, which is fine. But a lot of people go to university for computer science because that's the closest thing to anywhere that you can go to pay money to become a programmer. And the goals are a little bit misaligned, I think. Yeah, that was me. I went to college to get a CS degree. And I didn't really like the classes that much. I was much more excited <laughs> about coding stuff on my own, uh, meeting up with friends and other people who were getting CS degrees and working on our own online projects. Like That's what mm. really drove my education, I think. Yeah. Anyway, you spent a long time learning. And now you are a teacher. How do you think the time that you spent learning affected your approach to teaching others? I mean, I feel, I'm still learning, right? Like it's still, I'm not really happy unless I'm learning, unless I have something that I'm excited about uh, that I'm diving into and trying to get better at. I can't say I have a really great answer for how I think uh, being obsessed with learning specifically influences my ability to, to help other people learn. Uh, other than that, I have to believe that uh, caring about learning and wanting to learn things myself must influence how I structure material and stuff to help things resonate for people that that think the way I think anyways. Because, you know, the best I can do is try and design something that, that makes sense for me in terms of like how to teach something. Probably the common thread between all the educational stuff I've ever made has always been trying to make like the learning resource that I wish I had when I was trying to learn a particular right. topic. I do a lot of, a lot of the stuff that I've worked on has been um, basically created from me learning a bunch of things from a scattered bunch of resources, you know, all over the place and trying to like pull it all together into something that makes sense in a cohesive way. So I mean, when I was working on like a test driven development course for PHP developers, there wasn't really any good information out there specifically targeted at PHP developers or people who use Laravel, which is sort of the framework I use as the example for everything. But there was tons and tons of really good information in like the Ruby and Rails communities and even in like the Java communities. But a lot of people in my community won't sort of make the journey to go and like learn another language so that they can learn some principles to apply back to where they were where they actually work whereas like me i'm obsessed with getting to the bottom of things and learning every nook and cranny of everything so i'll learn whatever i need to to understand some book that's about rails that i don't know anything about rails or whatever like i'll learn rails and i'll learn ruby so i can learn the concepts and bring it back like when i was really obsessed with powerlifting i was like reading russian strength training manuals and stuff and translating them <laughs> to english so i could find out, you know, what approaches and stuff people are using in different places. So I'll go to the ends of the earth to find the information that I want. A lot of other people, you know, that just not the way that they operate. So what I've done a pretty good job at and what's worked well for me is to take that sort of natural inclination that I have and use that to make things easier for other people by sort of, you know, sailing across the ocean and getting the information and bringing it back. So today you are full-time on your courses and your books. You make millions of dollars, actually, from selling those. Back in the day, though, when you were into powerlifting, when you were in a band, how did you support yourself? Was your band actually paying you? Oh, no, that was, like, never any good. Like, I was young, right? So I was, like, 16, 17, 18, 19 when I was, like, really, really into playing music a lot. So I was just working part-time jobs while I was in high school and then part-time jobs when I was in college, too, just doing whatever. Like, I worked at a a hardware store. I worked at like a warehouse packing um, like big skids of food shipments for grocery stores. Did that for a while. And my first kind of like real job that probably was enough 
like paid me enough money to live like an adult was um, working in Fort McMurray, Alberta in the oil sands, which is like super far north. It's where they extract a bunch of oil from the sand and sell it all over the world, whatever. Uh, really kind of horrible, awful, frigid, cold place. But I worked in the office there basically just doing data entry stuff because uh, actually the drummer in my band, his dad was running the project up there. So um, that kind of got me, he kind of got me the job up there. And then when I got into the powerlifting stuff, I was doing a lot of that while I was in college for software engineering and continued doing that during my first couple of jobs until a couple injuries kind of set back my my progress there. And now it's not as big of a focus for me. But yeah, I mean, like my first real career, I would say would be like software development starting when I was like 25, 26, when I got my first job. And before that, it was just kind of, you know, whatever was around that would pay me the most money so I could uh, afford to live while I focused on you know, the stuff that actually excited me. So now I'm fortunate enough to be in a position in like the software industry. Like I think a lot of the listeners are where you actually kind of like your job, which is pretty nice. You get to work on fun and interesting things and uh, you don't necessarily dread going into the office every Monday. So definitely a good place to be compared to those days. I can imagine not really liking your job working in the oil sands of Alberta. But once you started getting software engineering jobs, I think that's it for a lot of people. Most people who love to code get a job like that and they're like, great, I get paid to do what I love. This is, this is it for me. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't for you. You eventually went on to become your own boss. Why do you think you never got stuck, so to speak, at any of these earlier jobs? Um, it was kind of almost an accident in some ways, honestly. I don't think even like when I released my first book that I really had aspirations to be like a full-time author, course creator sort of person. Um, The reason I created the book was mostly just out of um, like a passion for making things and putting them on the internet. Like my whole life, I've always loved, like even when I was doing like the music stuff, I'd love like working on a new mix and posting it on like the forums where I used to hang out and get feedback from people or get put up something I was really proud of and hopefully have other people see it and, you know, give me awesome feedback and that would make me feel really good. Even when I was into powerlifting, I used to create all these like really beautiful, fancy spreadsheets for different training programs. And I would publish those in the forums and stuff that I would hang out on for other people to use. I just like I've always been really, uh, really obsessed with making things and making them to like a really high level of polish and just derived a lot of satisfaction out of putting things out there that are kind of like finished that I could like put my stamp on and be like, I made this. So being like into programming and being obsessed with learning and reading all these books and stuff and, and realizing that, you know, I was doing all this work to learn stuff because the resources didn't exist in the communities that I kind of hung out in. I guess just one day I just kind of sounded like a good idea to like make a book because I was reading all these books and seeing, I was buying eBooks on lean pub and stuff like that. Right. That kind of peers and stuff we're making. It's like, you know, I could do something like that. It would be really damn cool to like write a book. That seems like a cool thing to be able to say I did. So I think that was probably really my initial motivation. Yeah, I could like make a little bit of extra money, but it wasn't, I wasn't doing it as like a way to escape the nine to five or anything necessarily. That just kind of happened. (laughs) Well, it's safe to say that you escaped the nine to five regardless. Today, your courses and books have generated millions of dollars in sales in just a few years. And you get to keep all of that. You don't have a publisher. You don't have an agent. It's all yours. Has making all that money changed your ambitions or changed your motivations for why you do this? 
in some ways, I think like, I think, um, something that I never really thought too much about until I was sort of in it was that your life is a lot different when you run your own business than it is when you have a job. And in ways that like, I never really realized, like, I basically feel like I'm retired now because I just get to work on the things that I want to work on that, you know, I don't have anyone telling me what to do. I can work my own hours, whatever, whatever. All my um, income is like basically not coupled to the amount of effort that I put in. So I have a lot of freedom that I never really realized was, was possible. And that's only really possible. I think when you have like equity and some sort of thing that makes money. So although I wasn't like super obsessed with this sort of thing before I started a business, like now I, I realize like when I look back to like being in school and stuff, it actually like frustrates me that they don't teach you about these options. Like, Hey, you don't actually have to get a job. Like school is designed to prepare you to go work for somebody else. But it turns out that like you can actually create your own job and make your own money doing your own things. And there's all sorts of benefits to it. And yes, it's hard in some ways that having a job isn't, and maybe like, it's not something that necessarily everybody can succeed at, but, um, I kind of feel like ripped off in a little, uh, sense, like, because I wasn't really exposed to, to this sort of thing. Like a story I like to tell is I remember as a kid, I'd be in the car with my parents my sister driving somewhere and we'd go through some really nice neighborhood. And I always be thinking to myself, looking at these nice houses, like what sort of jobs do these people have? Like where could they possibly be working that someone's paying them enough of a salary to afford something like this? And it wasn't until like I basically started working for myself that it became clear to me, like actually those people own businesses. Like that's why that they have are able to afford <laughs> these nice houses. You know what I mean? Because yeah. there aren't jobs that are going to pay you like the amount of money that you can make working for yourself and scaling up a, a product business that isn't coupled to, you know, the amount of time that you work. Exactly. If you're a founder, you get paid basically according to whatever customers feel like you're worth paying. Whereas if you've got a full-time job, you got a salary, you're getting paid for your time, you're really getting paid according to how easy you are to replace. And you're probably pretty easy to replace because you have a job title and other people have like gone to school to do exactly what you do. So there's a cap there. It's a cap yeah, on your totally. There's a cap on your salary, really. Yeah. When did you decide to first start your company, Adam? I mean, so the very first time that I tried to get people to pay me directly for some service was probably when I was recording bands, right, and running like a local recording studio, and um, that was like a total failure because bands don't have money or whatever. But that was like kind of my first attempt at working for myself didn't really work out, didn't make enough money to really do anything with it, but sure. Once I got into like software engineering a lot more, the first time that I ever took money from anyone on the internet was actually, I built a, a small SaaS application called Nitpick CI that was just like a, a tool for reviewing code style in pull requests and PHP projects on GitHub and sort of automatically commenting like, hey, like you're using four spaces, you should be using two or whatever, like that sort of thing to just sort of help people avoid uh, focusing on the wrong things in code review. And I built that, I think I released that in like November, 2016 or 2015, probably 2015, must've been 2015. And I built that mostly as a, mostly as an exercise in taking a product to completion, like a software project to completion, because I've been working at agencies for a long time. And one of the downsides to working at 
an agency, in my experience anyways, is a lot of the time you work on a project for a month or two, the client runs out of money because it turns out their business was actually a bad idea and the project basically gets put on hold and so many projects never leave like your local development environment. And that was kind of disheartening. And it was, I really wanted to be able to build something from scratch, take it all the way to the finish line and put it on the internet in a state that people could actually like put in their credit card and pay me for it. So I kind of built this tool, uh, the SaaS app, not really as a, a means to like start a business and make money on the internet, uh, just really to sort of prove to myself that I could build a product from start to finish. But that, uh, when I released that, was the first thing that anyone ever gave me money for. And it wasn't a lot of people because I didn't know anything about marketing or bootstrapping a business or trying to, you know, I kind of did the classic developer, kind of build it in silence and then one day launch it, thinking that everyone's going to be excited about it and sign up for it on day one, which of course doesn't work. But I didn't really think of it as a failure because that wasn't really uh, my goal. But yeah, that would be the first time that I put something on the internet that uh, people gave me money for. How did it feel to actually see dollars in your bank account for something that you built yourself? Exciting, but also like completely terrifying. Like there's something really scary about like strangers on the internet giving you money and feeling like like you're like on the hook in some way to like not disappoint them because of course you sort of undervalue anything that you do yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, I built this thing myself. How good could it really be? Like these people are used to paying like Apple for things and I'm just Adam in his basement. Like, Oh man, this is terrifying, but I'm pretty exciting in, in a lot of ways too. A lot of people have trouble staying focused enough to ship things, but that doesn't seem to be a problem with you. My advice for these people is usually to start small, work on bite-sized things that you can release quickly before you get bored or distracted. How do you manage to stay so focused that you can take these projects to completion? I think uh, the answer to that is I do not stay focused very well. And that's a challenge for me too. So I totally agree with you that like the best thing you can do is work on something very achievable, like try and design projects that are, are small enough that you can sort of see the finish line from the, from the beginning other than that, I think it helps to sort of create some sort of accountability for yourself in some ways. So for the last project, I worked on it with a partner. So I sort of had no choice but to work on it because I would look like sort of a real asshole if uh, I just sat around doing nothing while he's expecting to get this thing done and he's putting in his share and I'm not putting in mine. Uh, but when working on things in isolation, the best thing that's worked for me is sort of trying to be accountable to my audience. So making sure that like I'm constantly like posting updates about how far along I am on whatever the project is like on Twitter, as well as like sending an email out to the list of people who have sort of expressed interest in whatever I'm working on, trying to do that like every week sort of thing. So if I can send out an email a week, if a week goes by where I feel like I don't have enough to email about that kind of stresses me out and makes me kind of feel like, Oh shit, I'm not sort of keeping up with this, especially because I know from my own experience launching products, how important it is to be sort of in constant contact with the people who have expressed interest in it if you actually want to have a successful launch. You never want to be that guy that creates a landing page and then doesn't finish the thing for a year and a half and hasn't even talked to the people who signed up that entire time. And then someone gets an email a year and a half after they signed <laughs> up on a landing page saying, hey, this thing's done that you totally forgot about. Like, there's no anticipation there. Like, that's not going to go well, right? So sort of like knowing internally that like the only way this is going to be successful is if people are excited about it and there's hype around it and they really want to buy it. And I'm sort of like screwing myself if I don't have an update to share with these people. So 
yeah, that sort of like creates anxiety for me. And that's sort of what drives me to actually get the work done, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a crazy trade-off because working for yourself, you have a lot of freedom. And when you have the freedom to spend your time however you want to, like you're not going to do things that are boring mm-hmm. or that are like difficult or frustrating because that's not what you want to do. And so I think it's good to have a little bit of that anxiety you were talking about, Adam, to exchange a little bit of that freedom to do what you want with some external pressure to force you to do the things that you need to do that you don't necessarily want to do. Yeah, even if it's feeling obligated to your wife so you can pay the mortgage so she has somewhere <laughs> to live. Because, I mean, once you stop making things, you stop making money. I mean, that's not necessarily true if you're working on something that has like recurring revenue or whatever. But uh, for the business that I run, everything is you know, quite launch focused. Um, and that's where I, I make a, most of my money at these big launches. So I always have to have some idea for like the next thing that I'm going to be working on. And until that thing comes out, sales are just kind of very, very slowly dropping for, for everything else, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So your first business, Nitpick CI, was software. It was software as a service. It was a SaaS app. What made you decide to switch from building SaaS applications to releasing a book for your next project? I, uh, I'd been reading a lot of books and stuff from other people in the community who had sort of been self-publishing things. And, uh, you know, that was really cool. And I had this idea in the back of my head, like before I ever even put out the, uh, the SAS app that one day it would be cool to like write a book about this, this topic, which at the time was like test driven development, because I thought that a lot of the, a lot of the information out there was harmful in a sense. And I wasted so much time doing things sort of what I thought was the right way based on sort of the advice I'd read online, but in practice turned out to just like make me hate my code. And I wanted to sort of uh, kind of share what I had learned with other people and try and set other people on, on a path that I, I thought was better just because of how cheated I felt by the information that I had been trying to learn from. But because I was working full time, like writing a book just seemed like a really, uh, like an overwhelming task, right? Like how am I going to have time to write a book when I'm working like a a full-time job? How do I even get started? I don't even know anything about it. And then I noticed that a friend of mine who had actually like been a mentor of mine when I was in the like uh, audio engineering stuff who used to run a studio and I kind of interned at that studio just to kind of learn the ropes and kind of how to do stuff. Uh, He had sort of started getting into creating courses and stuff, um, teaching other people music production. One day, I, I wish I could remember how it even came up, but we just decided we just met up for coffee one day after like not really being in contact for like a, a couple of years, and I was just kind of asking him about like how it was going and learning more about it, and uh, mentioned to him that I had been thinking about doing like a, a book, and it just been kind of like an idea sitting in the back of my mind, but not really like a something I was really excited to necessarily get into, and uh, he kind of convinced me to uh, to think about it a little bit more seriously and. And I told him my concerns about, you know, it sounds like a really ambitious project. I don't know how I'm going to find time for it. And he said, why don't you start with like a, a tripwire product, he called it, which I think is a term that, you know, other people in that sort of internet marketer space would probably be familiar with, where um, you just kind of make something really, really small that you can charge like 10 bucks for and uh, use that as just like a, an opportunity to get your feet wet and sort of, you know, get a win and feel like, okay, I've made something that's for sale on the internet. And the, the other benefit to it is you get a little bit of opportunity to sort of practice with marketing and stuff. Any people who buy that are going to be more likely to buy other stuff from you in the future because they've proven that they're willing to give you their money for something. So it's just like a good way to sort of get started with this sort of stuff. So I sort of started thinking about that. Like, what can I make that's like really small? 
And I had sort of been building a reputation in my little Twitter community for um, a bunch of like work that I've been doing with uh, sort of like functional programming concepts and applying it in PHP. Nothing too crazy, just more like basic list transformation stuff. Like I remember when I first learned like array map and I was like, holy crap, like I've been doing this over and over again using this loop. And this is how I've always written this code. And there's a way to do it in this like declarative way using this like higher order function that I'd never really thought about before. And that just kind of got me excited. So I had been like um, tweeting like little examples of like, uh, check out this like code that I like refactored using, you know, these ideas, just sharing kind of what I was doing because I was excited about it, not because I was necessarily trying to deliberately build an audience or anything. So, but I had been just because people are interested in people who are sharing what they're doing online. So I had sort of a natural built-in advantage in that I really just enjoyed putting stuff out there. So that just kind of worked to my advantage in that sense. But I'd sort of been developing this reputation for doing this sort of stuff. And people had been like messaging me like, hey, how would you refactor this? Or how would you refactor this? Um, So when I was trying to think of like small product ideas, I thought maybe I could do like a little kind of mini guide on refactoring like ugly nested for loop stuff into sort of elegant list transformations in PHP and just show a couple of like my favorite practical use cases where some of these ideas are useful. So I had this idea to do like maybe like a 40 or 50 page PDF that just covered like a dozen useful examples. I started trying to look into like, okay, well, how do you kind of launch an ebook? How do you get started? How do you kind of prepare for it? And somehow I stumbled onto like Nathan Barry and, um, a lot of his content and he had had a lot of success creating like self-publishing books about like web design. And he had a podcast where he interviewed a bunch of other people who had uh, launched courses and books and kind of shared, um, you know, what they learned along the way. So I started just like devouring this information. I think, um, something that is like probably a useful tip for people that I do a lot is I'm constantly like, noticing when I discover like a new person that I think has something interesting to say about something. And as soon as I find out about someone who I never knew about before, who has an interesting opinion on something, the first thing I do is I go find like every podcast they've ever been interviewed on. And I listen to all of them. And I just try to devour like every piece of content on the internet related to that person. And that's been a really good way for me to get exposed to, to interesting things and sort of learn well, what people does this person learn from? And then I go and devour what that person kind of has put out and stuff like that. So whatever the first article that I read from Nathan was, I wish I could remember how I even found it, but I just decided, okay, this guy like knows a thing or two about this stuff. I'm going to learn everything I can from this guy. So that led me to like, okay, I got to make a landing page and start like collecting email addresses and I got to like send updates to the list and stuff. So I put up a little landing page for this book I decided to call it refactoring to collections. I was thinking it was going to be this like mini guide. Started collecting emails. Um, I wish I could remember what the numbers were. I do have a blog post that we could link to that probably shows like what the subscriber counts were at different times throughout this sort of process were. But yeah, so I started collecting emails and started working on the book. I decided to sort of structure the book in two sections. The first half was going to be here's sort of like an introduction to sort of some of these concepts learning what like some of these basic list transformations do, how to think about them, how they work. Then the second half of the book was going to be, okay, here's a bunch of practical examples of how you can use these ideas in your actual code. So I was just working on the first half of the book. And before I knew it, I had like 40 pages or something of just 
sort of introductory material. And it was really tightly done. I think I wasn't like wordy or just like dragging on I, I I just realized I had a lot more to say about the topic than I thought originally. Um, so instead of just being this mini guide, um, it ended up being like a 150 page book or something. And once it started to grow, I started to realize, okay, like I've been reading all Nathan's stuff. Nathan talks a lot about using like tiered pricing to make sure that you like make the most money possible at your launches. And you don't just want to charge $19 for an ebook. You want to figure out a way to have, you know, a hundred dollar package or like a $200 package. So I had made screencasts and stuff in the past. And, uh, I decided, why don't I take like all these examples from the book that are kind of making up the last half of the book. And I'll take each one of those chapters and record it as a screencast too. So for people who want to sort of consume that in video format and maybe pick up a, an extra trick or two by being able to watch someone actually do the work, you know, maybe people would pay a little bit extra for that. So I recorded a bunch of these screencasts, like 15 screencasts that were maybe like 10 minutes long each sort of thing. Then for a third tier, I thought, well, I built this SaaS app and the SaaS app is actually loaded with all sorts of practical examples of the ideas that are in this book. And the SaaS app was a failure in terms of actually making me money as an application. But I'm sure people would love to see like a full code base for a full application that includes a lot of these ideas. So I'll throw that into a third tier. So while I was working on this thing, I was sending out updates to people, um, you know, uh, here's a chapter that I worked on or uh, here's how many videos I have left or whatever. I started working on the book in February and I launched it in May uh, with the three tiers. I, th- I can't remember what I priced them at. I think it was like 29 59 and 109 or 108 or something like that. That's some weird number. Yeah, I put that out there and, and it just did way, way, way better than I thought. I did like 25 grand in the first day. And I was like floored. I I couldn't even believe it. And like, I was texting my wife, like, holy shit, this is insane. Like, I thought maybe I'd make like 20 grand over like the course of a couple of years of it just being up and selling slowly or whatever. Um, But, you know, following all these, um, following kind of this like step-by-step process of trying to make sure I do everything right to sort of line up this launch, turns out it actually, you know, makes a big difference. So I ran like a launch sale for like the first three days and it did like 65 grand in the first three days. And that's when I realized like, man, there is like, this is more money than I ever thought was possible to make in this time period. It's just like the craziest feeling, craziest experience I've ever had. And I thought, man, like this was just like my little tripwire product that I wanted to make just to get my fee wet. Like the real thing that I wanted to make was this like testing book or testing course. And I knew there was people hungry for that information. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to make that thing and I think I can't do it part time and that I, uh, I'm going to need more time than that to do it, quitting my job right now is the best chance I'm ever going to have at having the time to actually put this thing together. And the opportunity is clearly here, right? Like I never thought it was possible for me to just make my own money selling things on the internet until I put this thing out there. So that just got kind of the wheels turning in my head. And I decided uh, basically to put in my two weeks notice on my job immediately and uh, started working on uh, the next course. I don't even remember what question prompted this, by the way. So <laughs> if I didn't answer it, let me know. I think you did. What does your wife think about all this money that you're making suddenly out of nowhere? 
I mean, at the beginning and still to this day a little bit, but at the beginning she was scared because she was like, this doesn't seem right. Like, are we doing something illegal? Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, you're not supposed to just have money like this show up in your bank account. Like, this is scary. Like, I feel like something about this just doesn't feel like rock solid or whatever. Of course it is. It's just like a weird, crazy experience that most people don't get to experience. It's just so different from how you're used to getting paid for things. But yeah, I mean, like, obviously... Uh, she's happy about like the lifestyle that we have now. It's great that I can be like home and available and uh, with her and our daughter and, you know, we can go on vacations like whenever we want. We don't have to ask people's permission for things. And uh, of course, I'm sure I'm a happier and a better husband too, because I get to spend all my working hours working on the stuff that I'm interested in. And whereas, you know, in the past, I would always want time in the evenings and weekends to be working on my side projects because I wouldn't get to work on those at work. Now I get to spend more of that time with my family. So yeah, it's great. Did you ever have any of those same doubts yourself? Because it seems like you're pretty confident and quitting your job not that long after you launched the course. Um, I did have some doubts like, man, maybe this next product won't do well, but I, I, I really did believe that it was going to do well. I didn't know for sure. Like, what am I going to do after this? Like, I know I want to do this testing book or testing course, but maybe that's the last idea I have for something like this. But I thought worst case scenario, I'm a programmer. Like, it's not hard for me to find a job, especially like my audience and my reputation has been growing. I've been speaking at conferences, whatever. Worst case scenario, I can just get another job at a company being a, a software developer. And I got to have a little bit of fun in between jobs where I made my own stuff and, you know, made a lot more money than I would have had a job anyway. So I wasn't too, too worried about that. You mentioned that you were working nights and weekends and you're building, you know, this, this initial ebook and course, basically while you had a full-time job. I know a lot of people who are trying to make that work and yet can't find the motivation, can't find the time. Do you have any tips for anybody in that situation? I think um, for me, the only reason I ever finished that book is because in my head, I believed it was like a 40 page PDF. And I thought it was going to be something I could bang out in two weeks and it wouldn't take a lot of time. And it just, I could see the finish line from the beginning. Now I was totally wrong and it ended up being way bigger. And if I had known how big it was going to be, I think I would have been intimidated. I don't think I would have been able to start. So probably the best advice I can give is figure out a way to, to split it up into smaller projects and make things feel feel achievable. You know, if you're just working on your first project, maybe just try and figure out a way to cut down the scope completely so that the whole thing feels achievable. Even if like, like the very first thing you release doesn't have to be the thing that, you know, earns you your freedom. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's good just to sort of get a little bit of a victory and feel like you, you put something out there that made a little bit of extra money. Maybe it's enough that, um, you feel comfortable like switching to freelancing and only doing like 25 hours a week on client work. So you have a little bit of extra time to work on your your side projects or whatever. Uh, but I definitely think like just trying to figure out how you can make it feel achievable and finishable by trying to slice it up into, into smaller projects and setting sort of like mini deadlines for yourself um, is a really, really good way to do that. Yeah, I love that advice because it's so it's like the most common thing in the world for people to get jazzed up about this ambitious idea they have and then get discouraged because it actually takes a long time to get mm-hmm. to that idea. And you really have to break it down into chunks and they need to be small. And I think when I look at your story, you could be said to have started small as well. I mean, even before you decided to write this, what you thought was going to be a 40-page book, 
you were tweeting, right? You had already given a few talks. You, I think you had started your podcast by then, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so like all those were like things you were doing that weren't ever going to earn you freedom for your job, but they nevertheless contributed to you having this great book launch. Yeah. I think like the most important thing you can do if you're, I mean, okay, so this isn't totally true because there's a lot of counter examples out there, but for me anyways, the, the most important things that I did for my own success were to like build my audience and sort of like my personal brand so that I could eventually sort of cash in on that. You know, a lot of that came down to like you were talking about giving talks and meetups, which led to giving talks at conferences and sharing what I'm learning on Twitter, writing blog posts, putting out screencasts, stuff that it's hard to draw the straight line between like this and some income. But by sort of just like being helpful on the internet and being valuable and creating value for people, you're building up a lot of goodwill and building this audience that hopefully one day when you do have the idea for something that you could sell, you know, you have an audience of people to sell it to. There's a lot of people who have succeeded at running businesses that are not personality driven at all, of course, too. So don't think that that's the only way to do things, but that's what's worked for me. And that's kind of how I built my business. Anyways, I certainly don't think that a, building an audience could ever be a bad thing, you know? Yeah. And I did things kind of the opposite way with indie hackers. Like I didn't have an audience, then I built indie hackers. And now because of that, I do have an audience. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of a counterexample. But on the other hand, I'm also the exception that proves the rule. Where because I didn't have an audience beforehand, it's not like, it's not in my DNA. It's like being pushed onto stage before practicing. And so like, I barely even tweet. Like, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to do these things if it's not sort of your natural inclination, right? Like, I definitely am lucky in the sense that this sort of stuff is helpful in the sort of business that I run anyways, like being able to build an audience and build a reputation and, and stuff like that and sharing what you know. Like it all helps me be more successful at launching courses and stuff like that. But I don't know if I could do all that work if it didn't come naturally to me. Like if I didn't get, if I didn't derive satisfaction out of just like, being able to post like some interesting tweet or some tip on Twitter and have people like reply, wow, this was like so helpful to me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I get like a lot of satisfaction out of just like sharing what I'm doing and, and that sort of stuff. So it helps me and it's like been super important, but that's not the reason that I do it, which is probably the only reason that I've been able to get where I am because I enjoy sort of every step of the process. If any of that stuff felt like a chore or, um, felt like I had to like be really deliberate about like forcing myself to like do a live stream or something. I don't know if I have sort of a grit to, to get through that. (laughs) So I think maybe the other element to that is just to find what, what energizes you and just try and look for some alignment between like, okay, what are the things that I derive satisfaction from already that also contribute to sort of like my end goal in some way I can like sort of focus my time on that. So for me, like I've done a lot of blogging and stuff in the past, but I've, it's always been hard for me to keep up with it. Whereas like um, live streaming has been something that I've been doing for a few years now on and off that I actually really enjoy doing and could do every day and, you know, wouldn't ever feel like uh, like work and writing blog posts and live streaming are both going to build your audience you know, the same way, maybe one works better than the other or whatever. They attract slightly different kinds of people, but they're both moving you in the same general direction. So I think it's probably important to just look for opportunities to double down on the things that, uh, that you personally derive satisfaction from that also contribute to your goals. That's such a great point. We were talking earlier about 
how it's important to have a few of these external forces that sort of force you to do things you should do. You know, it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's kind of a good thing when you're running out of money and you're forced to, to get serious. It's kind of a good yeah. thing when you have an audience and they give you a little bit of anxiety to get the thing out the door, but there's a limit to that. And if a hundred percent of what you're working on is you having to be forced from, you know, some external thing that's forcing your hand rather than just like your internal satisfaction, then you're not going to last very long either. So totally agree. Totally. Yeah. You talked a lot about the things that you did right in order to make over $65,000 in your first few days of launching this course. Uh, since then, you've gone on to launch quite a few more courses. Um, what are some yeah. things you've learned since then? How has your approach changed? Honestly, my approach hasn't changed too much from the the first product, but I can share some, a few things that uh, I think I did wrong or that I've done a little bit differently since then. So probably the biggest mistake I made for the first launch was I had this like three day launch window where was, the book was discounted for three days. And by like midnight on the third day, I was still getting sales like every couple of minutes. And just to sort of honor my word and not look like a lying asshole, I had to go and to like change the price and put it up to full price and end the sale. And then people stopped buying completely. That was like such a shitty, stressful feeling. It's like literally there was this like hose of money firing at me and I turned it off. Plugged it. So what I kind of learned from that was that I don't think timed launch windows are not a terrible idea. Like, you know, having some time period where something's on sale. I do think it's probably a bad idea to do too short of a window. Like in that case, what I've done since then has been to not have an actual end date on the launch at the time that it starts. And instead just sort of launch at a sale price, wait until sales have significantly slowed down and then use that as an opportunity to send out another email and be like, Hey, this is the last week to get the book at the launch price or to get the course at the launch price. The price is going up on Friday. And you use that as like sort of a second mini launch where you can get a bunch of extra sales that you wouldn't have got before because you're sort of reminding people. You also didn't like artificially put a cap on like your launch earnings either because you sort of waited for things to sort of die off on their own naturally. Um, So that's sort of been the approach that I've used since then. And that's worked uh, really well for me. And it's made me feel a lot less anxious about leaving money on the table for things. Other mistakes, I would say uh, the second product, so the testing course, um, I launched that uh, November 2016. So that was, I guess, like six months after the book came out, the Refactoring the Collections book. But I launched the course unfinished because I really wanted to get it done. I had announced a deadline to my audience. And I said, it's going to be out on this day. I announced that, like, I think like two weeks before the date that I was going to release it. And I thought, you know, if I just grind through and record, 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 record these videos, I'll get it done. But it wasn't done. And there was just so much to cover. Everything that I thought was going to be like one 10 minute video ended up being eight, mm-hmm. 10 minute videos. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I talked to a few people to try and get some input. What do you think I should do? Should I just postpone the launch? Should I do some sort of like early access thing? I decided to do an early access launch. So I launched it on the date that I said I was going to launch it, but I launched it with just the stuff that was done so far, you know, at a pretty big discount with sort of the promise that I was going to release new videos every week until the course was done. And that's what I did. But it took me another year to finish the course, putting out videos like every week. Sometimes I would miss a week, but I was putting out 
you know, four or five lessons basically every week until it was done. And it ended up being like 160 videos. That's like 23 hours long. It was just like the most stressful year of my life because I just felt like these people had given me money and I owe them now. It's not like they bought something that was finished for me. They bought something that's unfinished. And now like I'm in debt to those people. And that was a really shitty feeling. And because of the fact that people had already paid me and I'd already given like what the course outline was going to be, I couldn't cut the scope of the project, which is what I would have normally done. Like normally I have a deadline and it's like, okay, let's, I know I want to get it done by this date. What can I cut? What can I change to, to fit that deadline? Because otherwise the project would go on forever. And I couldn't change it because people had already paid me. And I still did change it a little bit, but every time I wanted to make a change to the curriculum or cut a, cut a section or something, I felt dread around it because I'm always worried who's going to email me and be like, hey, where's this lesson that you promised? I noticed you decided not to do it. I, I only bought it for this one lesson and now you're not going to deliver it. You know, these are the fears that are going through your head. Yeah, it took me a, another year to finish the course, which in some ways was was okay. Like from like a strategic business perspective, looking at it objectively, it was actually probably good because every time I was posting new lessons, I could tweet about it. I could say, just added a new module on testing background jobs to the course or whatever. I could say, by the way, the course is still available at the early access price. And having an excuse to keep talking about it because I was still putting out new stuff meant that sales were a lot steadier and consistent for a longer period of time. They didn't like drop off as much like they would at a traditional like finished product launch. But the stress of it was not worth it to me. So I kind of decided after that, like I'm never doing an early access product ever, ever again. From now on, I finish it before I launch it. Because when I launched the book, that feeling that day of the book being out, every line, every word being written, the videos being done and people paying me money that was like an incredible feeling. I was like, holy crap, like I'm reaping the rewards of the work that I've done. Whereas the day that I launched the testing course, it actually did $100,000 in the first day. And that day was just like, in some ways exciting, right? But in more ways, I just like felt dread. I was just like, I was actually kind of like scared because of how many people bought it. There was like more people I was in debt to. Every sale was just like one more person that I owed something to. And that was just not a good feeling at all. So I would say um, if you're going to release like a, a course or a book, like an information product like this, think hard about what sort of person you are. And um, if that feeling of like being indebted to people is going to be like a major drain on you, think about that hard before deciding to do like a, a pre-release. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you're probably better off just uh, waiting until the full thing is released. Yeah, that sense of dread is horrible. And it's funny because like you talked about your your book, your first book. I mean, that was the thing that you finished. Like there was a point where you completed it, every word was done, you could move on to the next thing. That sense of freedom is incredible. For sure. Like I've never felt that free before. I've <laughs> I built SaaS apps. Like the Andy Hackers Forum, are you kidding me? That thing is yeah. never gonna be done. Every week the task list is longer than it was the week before. So for you to go from the situation that you were in to suddenly you're working all the time on this thing that people have already paid for, there's no more money coming in. You're just like in the hole. You're in debt. It sounds it sounds terrible. Yeah, you're just paying them back. It feels like yeah, yeah. crappy feeling. So there are some other changes you've made to your processes that didn't fare quite as poorly. For example, your most recent work, Refactoring UI, is a book you published with a collaborator, Steve. I believe you said. Mm -hmm. What was yeah. it like working together with somebody else for the first time? It was really good, actually. Um, um, so I've known Steve for, for a few years now. We kind of 
met each other because we were both live locally and we're both sorts of, you know, we both kind of just been involved in the, uh, sort of hacker building your side project sort of scene. He's a designer. I'm a developer. He'd worked with other developers on projects here and there. And we had a mutual friend who sort of introduced us and we sort of hit it off and started working on a couple of little fun projects together that never saw the light of day, but we, we really enjoyed working together. He had seen like some of the success that I had with my own products and stuff. He kind of was interested in getting into it too, like maybe doing a book or something. Like long story short, I convinced him like the first thing you got to do is like start building up an audience. And I think a good way to do that is to, is to try and teach developers design, like maybe share some, some tips and stuff on Twitter. We both sort of like stole this format from West boss, uh, the hot tip where it's just like a fire emoji, some useful tip. And then like a screenshot that kind of like shows off the kind of the, the idea from the tip. He started doing those on Twitter with like design stuff, like developers make this design mistake. Here's like what you should do instead we were sort of collaborating on those, not really like in any sort of deliberate way, but I'm a developer who cares a lot about design, even though I'm not like a designer by nature, you know, something I've just worked really hard to get as good at as possible, but I still feel like I'm very developer brained, you know, I'm not really like an artistic sort of person because like he's my friend and like, I want him to succeed. I would always be like sending him ideas for, for design tips too. Like anytime I would like learn something that really resonated with me as a developer, I'd be like, man, you should like make a tweet about this because like this really changed the game for me in terms of my own design. And I think other developers could benefit from it too. And a lot of those things were things that, um, Steve maybe wouldn't have thought about on his own because they're just like second nature to him as a talented designer, like simple things like vertically offsetting your box shadows, you know, stuff like that. He'd be like, seriously, people, people would not do that automatically. Yeah. So he'd like, we'd kind of work together on these tips. I'd kind of help him like figure out how to frame something in a way that I think would really resonate with developers because really I was framing them to resonate with me. It blew up. So he went from like having like 800 Twitter followers to like 30,000 Twitter followers in a year and a half just from sharing these tips on Twitter. And he had wanted to do a book and I'd like been giving him advice and uh, he had started actually writing the book. And he showed me what he had. And it was it was very much like a chapter on like typography, a chapter on, you know, color theory, a chapter on whatever. And I said to him, I was like, this is great information, but this isn't like the way developers want to consume it. Like developers don't care about learning design. They care about like making their stuff look good. They want to get better at design sort of like by coincidence, by learning like very tactical immediately applicable advice. So I started working with him, like figuring out how to reframe the content and stuff. And it got to a point where like I was helping him so much that I, I kind of had to ask myself, like, can I really afford to like keep putting in this time? Cause I got to work on my own stuff. And we just got to talking about it. I was like, well, maybe we should like partner on this and do this together. Um, because I think, you know, working together, we've created some like really great content that's really resonated with people. So we decided to kind of partner up on it. You know, he would be responsible. I mean, at the end of the day, when we actually made the book, what happened is I wrote all the words. Like we planned all the outline together, figured out what all the points would be. Mm-hmm. And then I took sort of our outline and turned that into full, fully written chapters. And he did like all the example images and any of the design stuff. And there's like 300 completely unique UI examples in that book. So it's like an insane amount of design work that he had to do. Um, but that's kind of how we split the work. And, and once we kind of decided that we wanted to write this book together, you know, of course the first step wasn't to really 
work on the book, it was okay, like, let's kind of get the marketing engine going in terms of building some anticipation around it, making sure that we're building up the audience. So he kept doing the stuff on Twitter. We started doing these like uh, case studies on like taking a developer's designs that they would like submit to us and we would like refactor them into better designs. Um, so we had this plan to do like a weekly article that was like a weekly written case study that took an original design from a developer and improved it and sort of outlined all the steps. Turned out we only ever did that one time because it was so much work. And then Steve started doing like video versions of the same thing, like screencasts. And those were a big hit. One of them went like totally viral and was like the front page of Reddit for a while and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, so we just kind of kept putting out content like that. Uh, Eventually, we announced that we were going to be working on this book, which was way later than we had already decided. Like we had known for a year that we were going to write this book before we actually announced it. I think like a mistake that a lot of people make actually with products like this is they this they sort of like announce their intentions to the world too early. And I mean, and framing it like that makes it sound like we're being deceptive or something, which I don't think I don't think we are. But if you just come out of the gate saying like, hey, I want to make a paid product and I want you to sign up for it, it's sort of um it, it sort of devalues any other like free content that you put out there because everyone feels like you have this ulterior motive even if you do like right. truly enjoy creating free content for people you know what i mean it's like yep. oh yeah this guy wrote this blog post because he's trying to trick us into signing up for his mailing list because he wants to milk us for some money later like that's kind of like what people see i think so we tried really hard to make sure that we didn't like tell people hey like we're actually only doing this to take your money because of course that isn't true like just like me steve loves sharing stuff online and getting feedback from people and he finds that really rewarding so we didn't want to sort of like poison our efforts there by kind of attaching this monetary stuff to it so we just kept working on the free stuff putting out good articles creating good videos stuff like that and i like to think about it in my head as sort of like you're compressing like this spring and you're just trying to push it down as far as you can And the further you push it down, the more energy builds up. And then when you finally like release a paid product, the amount of compression that you put into that spring is going to kind of determine how successful, you know, the paid product is. So we'd been compressing this spring for like two years, squeezing out like every millimeter of space in this thing to the point where Steve had like 40,000 Twitter followers and these like twit, uh, these design tips on Twitter were doing like uh, some of them were getting like 13,000 likes, like sort of insane stuff. Then we announced that we were going to be doing this book. And by the time we announced that we were doing the book, we had people tweeting us every day, like begging us to write a book with all the design tips and stuff. (laughs) So we knew we we were onto something there. But again, we had sort of been like testing this material for like a year and a half, making sure that it was resonating with people. We didn't just like, I think like a common mistake people make and bad advice that people give is the first step to validating a product idea is to make a landing page and see how many people you can get to sign up you need to make a landing page and see how many people sign up. But to me, that's like the last step in validating a product idea because no one is going to sign up on a landing page to buy something from someone who they've never heard of, who has never proven that they know what they're talking about, who has never delivered value on anything before. So to me, like the best way to test these ideas is like tweet things, create videos, create blog posts, just create free content around this stuff and see what sort of what hits and what doesn't hit, you know? And then when I'm pretty confident that like we have a good idea on our hands, like I'm 99% sure it would be successful. It's like, okay, let's make a landing page and start collecting emails just to really be sure that this is going to work. 
Um, so we did that and collected like thousands of emails. We have like 55,000 people on the mailing list now. Worked on the book for a while. I think we started working on it basically full time in like August after we had done a lot of, we'd done a lot of planning already, but we kind of really cranked on it full time in August and released it uh, in December. We had built up like so much anticipation around this. And, you know, we've been sending out email updates, of course, like we just finished this chapter, check out this free chapter, check out this free uh, screencast. Um, we sent out an email, I think it was like Sunday night or something saying, hey, so the book is going to be released this Tuesday or something. I can't remember the day we released it, December 12th, whatever day of the week that was, announcing the pricing and all that sort of stuff. And then we stayed up till like four in the morning on Monday night, Tuesday morning to get it all done and kind of get all the files prepared and uploaded and everything fully finished. And we uh, we posted that online. We do like what I've always done with these products is um to make sure everything's sort of working instead of like going to sleep, waking up in the morning, launching it and hoping everything works. What I usually do is I'll, I'll put things live as soon as I finish the final, you know, 11th hour work the night before, but I just don't tell anyone. So we converted our landing page into like the actual sales page. Didn't tell a soul. Tried to go to sleep. And usually you get a few sales right overnight because people just kind of, they check out the page and they know it's going to be released that day. So they're just kind of checking and they notice whatever. So even before we went to bed, we, we made the site live. We had like six or seven sales within like the first uh, 15, 20 minutes just from it being online and not even telling anyone. Crazy. So we tried to get some sleep. We, we slept for maybe three hours and got up at like seven in the morning. And then uh, I waited to like check all our stats on Gumroad until, um, until Steve was around. So uh, we hopped on like a Zoom call and I was like, okay, let's check, see like how this did. And it had been like three or four hours since we sort of silently launched it. And we hadn't told a single person and we had done $40,000 in sales. <laughs> Wow. Um, so that was like, to me, like that is, uh, that was the craziest part of the whole thing. And then it, it did like, um, I did close to $400,000 on the first day and it did a million dollars in the first month. Was that your most successful so, product ever? Yeah, by far. <laughs> that is crazy. Wow. How much has it done since then in total? Cause it's been out for some time now. Yeah. In total, let me uh, pull up number for you here because everyone loves the numbers so it's done uh 1.3 million us that's inspiring stuff it's done uh done really really well and still continues to sell pretty well to this day so there's a lot that i got out of that story you just told about this book and i think there are really two points i want to talk about number one at least when it comes to educational products like this like books and courses it's not just your product that speaks for itself it's also you it's your expertise that you can demonstrate. Yeah. It's your reputation and your audience that you've built. And so when you caution against putting up like this landing page prematurely, you're right. Because people don't know who you are at that point. Like, Why should they trust that you're going to be able to educate them? Why should they read your book? Like, Why should they invest? Totally. Yeah, I think it's a lot different than like a SaaS product where, I mean, with a, a SaaS app, I think having an audience is, a, is an advantage because, you know, you have a network and people are more interested in what you're doing for sure. But there's also an element of like, you want to make sure that the product can stand on its own two feet. Like you want to know that if it wasn't you, if you weren't the face of it, that people still have this problem and people are still willing to pay to solve this problem. Yep. But with something that's uh, like an info product, I, th I think the personality stuff is a lot more important and not 
not the personality stuff per se, but just like earning people's trust and like being like, you know, proving that you're someone that they want to learn from, um, I think is really important. So, yeah. The other takeaway that I got was that we've talked a lot about keeping it simple, keeping it short so you don't lose motivation and you stay focused. But this book was really multiple years of work for you. And it wasn't simple. It wasn't short. But what sounds like really kept you going is you constantly had this steady drumbeat of tweets and feedback from your audience. And these feedback loops where you release something and you try something and you get feedback from your audience that's positive or negative can be really addictive. It's like with, I'm totally. sure you experienced the same thing with lifting. You know, you go to the gym, you're yeah. stronger than you were the last week. It's really motivating. You want to keep going. Absolutely. Uh, it's just such an underrated way to motivate yourself to keep going at something. Yeah. It's all just a ton of micro projects, right? So even like a tweet is not like Steve sitting down and typing something out and tweeting it in three seconds. Like tweets are sometimes two weeks in the making. Um, they're like blog posts. It's like the same amount of effort as a blog post, but sometimes harder because you have to distill it into 280 characters, you know, because I think a really important piece of advice for, for sort of sharing valuable information online that I picked up from West Boss as well is that it's important or maybe not necessarily important. It's not maybe the right word, but something that can really help is to try and help people where they already are. So tweeting about a blog post is not going to get as much engagement as if you can fit the information from the blog post directly into the tweet. So we work really hard to try and just make the tweets like standalone, awesome pieces of content. And Twitter is not like the best place to build an audience for every niche. You know what I mean? Like Instagram might be better for a lot of places or maybe Facebook or maybe whatever else that I've never heard of. But for our audience, which is developers, Twitter is like the new universal software message board. You know what I mean? Like that's where everyone hangs out. So that's where kind of we uh, focus our efforts. So yeah, tweets are like little mini projects. Writing a blog post is a project. Creating a free screencast is a project. Even when we actually finally started working on the book itself, every chapter is a little project, right? Like I had a little web interface where I was um, sort of publishing the stuff for Steve to review. And I had it... uh, all built so that anytime like a chapter was finished, I would like add a little bit of metadata in the markdown at the top saying like finished true. And then the sidebar where all the chapters were listed, you know, that one would change color. So I could sort of see my progress and I could see there was a count at the top, how many chapters are remaining and stuff like that. Sort of gamifying it for myself in in a sense. But yeah, I think you have to, you have to just like look at the next milestone and work towards each milestone individually. Don't get overwhelmed by the whole thing. And the hidden benefit there is that every one of these milestones is like a mini release that you can learn from. And so you see if totally. it gets a lot of traction, you see if people read that blog post or retweeted that tweet, and then it informs your decision for what you're going to build. Yeah, we have like this blog post, I think it's called like seven practical tips for cheating at design. I think it's like the fifth most um, read post of all time on Medium. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty crazy. So it was a really good market for us, right? Like I think... um developers wanting to learn design is a, is a huge, huge group of people. So we were really uh, fortunate to be able to kind of meet each other and work together and have this unique advantage where Steve is a talented designer. I'm a developer who does a good job sort of interpreting Steve's ideas in a way that makes sense for developers. And we were able to put something together that I think resonated with developers more so than most other um, design kind of educational products out there. 
God, there's so many things I want to ask you, Adam. I'm going to keep you here all day at this rate. You've been talking about building an audience. You've been talking about the things that you've learned from other people who are super good at this, like Wes Boss. I really like the tip to just engage your audience where they already are. If you're going to tweet, say something useful in your tweet itself. Don't try to link people off of Twitter, for example. What are some tips you have for people listening in for how they can best go about learning this stuff? Should they just open up Twitter and look at Wes Boss's feed and your feed and just try to learn by example? Are there any books or courses they should be reading? Should they just ping you and ask you for advice? <laughs> um, I would say like if I had to point to like some of the resources that were really helpful for me, like I mentioned Nathan Barry's content, like I'm sure there's probably other stuff out there now, but his stuff was uh, was really good and helpful for me. He has this book, Authority, that basically takes everything that I learned from all his podcasts and all his blog posts and kind of distills that down into one resource. So that's like a a good thing to check out. And it kind of starts from like, okay, you have no audience, but you want to make like an info product or something. First thing that you need to do is sort of build authority. Like that's what the book is sort of about and uh, has a lot of good practical advice for doing that. Yeah. I think the tip about like trying to help people where they already are, like you want people to notice that they're getting value from you without even deliberately having to click into what like you're putting out there. You know, if people are just like scrolling through the timeline and they see that uh, you've made something interesting, like it just works a lot better than forcing people to to click away somewhere else. I think like a, maybe a little bit of an underrated channel for a developers specifically. So like a lot of people that would be listening to this podcast when it comes to sort of creating valuable stuff on the internet is uh, open source. So I think um, if you're not the sort of person who likes to write blog posts or make screencasts, you can build a pretty big audience just by creating useful free tools and stuff. Um, And that that can be like a really good opportunity to practice your marketing skills too by putting together a nice web page for the product and writing good documentation and, um, and stuff like that. And that'll earn, you know, you some trust and stuff with people too. There's certainly a lot of people out there who have big audiences because they've created useful open source projects. And if they were to go ahead and uh, create a course or something, they'd have a big advantage over someone who hadn't been creating open source. You know what I mean? Maybe writing blog posts is a little bit more effective. Maybe it's not. Uh, But what matters is that you're trying to pick something that helps you develop a bit of a reputation that is naturally aligned with like what you enjoy and what you get value from. Other than that, like one other maybe concrete tip, I think that kind of relates to what we talked about before in some sense. I think um, when you first announce like a product that you're working on, you have like a landing page, you kind of tell everyone, hey, I'm working on this, uh, sign up here if you're interested. Uh, what usually happens is you get a lot of signups on the first day and maybe the first couple of days, and then it kind of drops off completely because no one has, you don't really have a good reason to tell people about the landing page again, you know, like you've kind of, you've done it. It's out there now. So, um, what I do to sort of keep that alive and keep new people signing up to the list is anytime I'm about to email out an update, like, Hey, uh, you know, maybe I finished a chapter or I'm sending out like a free screencast or some sort of update on the product. Um, I make sure that I announce that I'm going to be sending that email through the other channels that I have first to sort of have a reason to drive people back to the landing page. So anytime I'm going to send out a free blog post, I'll go to Twitter first and I'll be like, hey, uh, you know, two hours from now, I'm going to be sending out a free sample chapter from Refactoring UI. In case you're not on the list, like 
here's the landing page if you want to get a copy of it. And that was a good way for me to like have more spikes in sort of the subscriber count and make sure that I was attracting new people. Because um, I think the the studies or research says that for like any given thing you post on social media, only like five to 10% of your audience ever even sees that post because not everyone's like a Twitter completionist, you know? Yeah. So it's important to kind of announce that stuff multiple times, but at the same time, developers specifically are really finicky audience when it comes to people sort of peddling their wares on the internet. So um, instead of just being able to tweet, in case you missed it, I'm working on a book every three days. It's nice if you can just have another reason to talk about it, which is I'm sending out an update that's going to cover this. You know, you're not just repeating yourself and annoying the people who are already aware. Um, So that's worked really well for me too. So we're talking a lot about the best practices, a lot of the tips and advice that come from other people, things that are well known. Is there anything you see repeated often that you don't agree with? Anything that you just sort of ignore and choose to do things your own way instead? I think probably... The one thing that I think maybe isn't necessarily common advice, but maybe it's like a common thing that people kind of get caught up in that I don't think is necessarily the best use of their time is uh, when you start getting into all this, like trying to do marketing and stuff on the internet, it can be really easy to get trapped in obsessing over analytics and funnels and attribution and conversion rates and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think that that's, the right place to be investing your energy. I know like when I've shared like my stories about like my product launches and stuff with people in like uh, maker communities that I hang out in a lot of time I'll get people saying like, where does your traffic come from or what's your conversion rate or whatever. And the people asking me these questions are people who aren't succeeding with their own products usually. And my answer is I literally don't know. I have no idea how many visitors we have on our landing pages. I have no idea what percentage of those people sign up. I've never thought to A-B test anything. I don't know what websites they're coming from. I literally have no clue. All I know is that anytime I put out a free blog post or put together a really well-crafted Twitter tip or do a live stream or put out a free screencast, I make more money. You know what I mean? And those are activities that are delivering value to other people that I actually enjoy working on. And that must be driving more traffic to my site from somewhere that must be increasing my conversion rates or driving more people to sign up for things. I don't know where they come from. I don't know who they are. I don't know why they do it. And I'm sure that information would be helpful and I could optimize things better with that information. But my personal belief is that like none of the changes that I can make with that information would ever move the needle as much as just making more awesome free stuff and being valuable to people on the internet. So um, I would say like, try not to get caught up in worrying about all these numbers and all that stuff. Just focus on the activities that actually help build your audience and actually build your own reputation and, uh, you know, try not to major in the minors so much. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Because all this stuff, I mean, it gives you an edge, but it's not directly creating value for people. Yeah, and I'm sure at a certain scale, if you have millions of people visiting your site, there are optimizations you can make that are going to make you enough money to be worth doing. But if you're worrying about that stuff because you were only able to get 600 people on a mailing list and you know you only sold pre-sold 42 copies of your book or something, like 
let's look at the numbers from like a different perspective. Like there's not enough numbers there for any of that stuff to matter. Right. Yeah. So it's better to just like, uh, yeah, focus on the stuff that is delivering value to your audience and don't try and optimize a bunch of stuff that just isn't going to make a difference. I think a lot of it comes down to, um, your team size as well. When you're a company of one, it's like, that's definitely not the most efficient way for you to spend your time. If you've got like a thousand employees, sure. You know, put somebody on the analytics Mm -hmm. and and that kind of stuff. But if you're small, you've got to make trade-offs and you can't really do all the things that a much bigger company can afford to do. Yeah. And actually that's like an interesting topic in general, because that's something I struggle with a lot is knowing that there's always things that I, there's always more things I could be doing to be more successful with what I'm doing. Right. Like, and it's, it's really hard to be proud of the stuff that you are getting done and like be satisfied that I got this done this week. I got this done this week instead of focusing on all the stuff that you didn't have time for or the stuff that's slipping. You know what I mean? It's been really hard for me to, to try and teach myself to just accept the fact that there's always going to be an infinite number of things that I could do that could improve things and that it's impossible to do them all. So since it's impossible, you know, I shouldn't get down on myself for not literally accomplishing the impossible. So you, yeah, you got to focus on like whatever you think is the the most important thing that you could be doing and the best use of your time and, and try not to be so down about not getting the, all the other stuff done. You sound like a perfectionist. You sound like me. <laughs> I could have just said exactly oh, what yeah. you said. Oh man. Definitely. It's a, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, I think, because I think, um, I think an area that is pretty easy to compete on in product development is quality. I think like probably one of the reasons that indie hackers was so successful in the beginning is because of the quality. Like everything was like super, super polished and professional. It wasn't like some like hacked together MVP. Like I'm sure to you, it felt like it was in a lot of ways, but to the people visiting the site, it was like, this, this is nice. This is like the real deal. Like this is well done. Yeah. It's the same with like educational stuff and courses and, you know, making that stuff good. And the same with SaaS apps and stuff like that. Like people care about using stuff that's, that's good and well done. And I think if you're sloppy, you're, you're leaving a lot on the table, but you know, it also makes it really hard to, to ship stuff to you. And I think, I think learning to ship smaller things is kind of the the secret there. Like it's better to, uh, this is like a 37 signals ism, right? It's like, um, half, not half assed or something like that, where it's like build half of a product and do it awesome instead of building a whole product. That's half as awesome as, you know, the half product would have been. Yeah. Jason Cohen, who I had on the podcast earlier this year, has something similar. He calls it the SLC, the Simple Lovable Complete Product. And the idea is make a really good skateboard. Don't make a crappy car. Yeah, so totally. Yeah, same idea, basically. Well, anyway, Adam, I've taken up a ton of your time. And I've still got a thousand more questions I want to ask you. People will be wondering why your next book isn't out. It'll be because you're still on the podcast answering <laughs> Corlin's questions. Usually I end by asking guests to give one piece of advice to people listening in who want to start their own companies. But there's one specific topic that we didn't really get, get onto. Uh, and that's the the topic of ideas, right? How do you know what to work on? I think this is what stumps a sure. ton of people. And you seem to be pretty good at navigating it. You know exactly what kinds of books and courses will resonate with what types of audiences. And you seem to hit the mark every single time. What's your advice for people who don't have an idea, who aren't sure what audiences are craving, who aren't sure what they should work on? Um, I would say... 
probably the least productive thing you could do is just like sit down and brainstorm product ideas. Like I think that's a trap that everybody falls into that I have fallen into all the time. And I always notice when I'm in that trap and I know that it's never been productive for me. I think the best thing that you can do, a couple different ways you can sort of find out what matters to people. One thing is to just like make something, even if it's not going to be a good idea necessarily, because once you actually like try to make something and finish it and do a good job on it, you will find things that were hard about that that might lead you to ideas for products that could actually be useful. I know like, you know, there's all sorts of ideas that I've had for things that I never would have had if I didn't like release a book, you know, examples would be, and again, maybe people don't pay for these, but they're the real pain points that I've run into is like a better analytics for my sales and not because I care about attribution for things, but because I want a better pulse of like, like I built my own custom sales reporting system just so I could get like a quick way to see like, okay, were my sales in the last 30 days? How did that compare to the sales in the 30 days before that? So I could like see like, what is the trend? Like how fast are things dropping? Am I still doing okay? Is next month going to be horrible? Other things is like accounting tools that I wish I had that I don't have that I only know I need because I tried to build like some other little business. So I think like just getting started and just doing something is a good way to sort of increase your, you know, like, I don't know what a good metaphor would be <laughs> like, just like widen your net for like other possible ideas, you know, and expose yourself to more problems and more pain points that you can sort of uh, discover. So if you want a great idea to work on, perhaps start by giving yourself permission to work on a mediocre idea. Yeah, exactly. You got to start with something. You got to start with a bad idea to help you find the good idea. Um, that's one way to do things. Um, the other thing I would say is just like work in public, super important. If you just share what you're doing online, share what you're excited about, talk about what you're learning, write blog posts about what you're learning. That's the only way that you can find out like what information you hold, what knowledge you have that excites other people or that gets attention from other people. That's what I've done with all my stuff. Like a lot of it starts with me being excited about a topic and then trying to learn more about it and sharing what I'm learning about it and then seeing if it's resonating with other people. So like I did a view course last year, I learned about this like render prop pattern from react that uh, no one was doing really in view. And I was really experienced with Vue and I didn't really want to switch to React just to apply some of these cool ideas. So I tried to figure out how the hell can I do this in Vue? And I figured out how to do it and figured out some interesting ways to do it. And I just started like tweeting about it. Like, check out this idea. Um, here's like a little screenshot of like something that you can do in Vue and this is how it works. I gave a conference talk about it, like an online conference. And the feedback from that was really good. Then I wrote like a really in-depth blog post explaining more about it. Just like, just like testing, 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 increasing like sort of the, the effort involved in the test. You know, it starts with like a tweet, then like a, a talk, then like a really in-depth blog post and just kind of making sure like every step along the way that it's still getting the same amount of attention. Like if the tweet didn't get attention, I wouldn't have done the conference talk. If the conference talk bombed, I wouldn't have done the blog post, you know, that's how I sort of test stuff and learn what people are excited about and, for the most part, like I'm not that different from other developers out there who are interested in like, you know, up and coming technologies or whatever. So 
the same is probably true for most people listening to this podcast. There's probably a good chance that the things that you're excited about, that you're learning, that feel new to you, are exciting and new to other people as well. So just share what you're doing there and make sure that it's resonating with other people and use that to sort of like refine your ideas a little bit. I've never been crazy formal about it, like serving people or asking questions. It's, it's really just like putting stuff out there and paying attention to the reactions, paying attention to the questions people ask, stuff like that. And then the other benefit that can come from this too is um, you can learn that you actually have something to offer that you didn't even realize you had to offer. So example of this is I was working on a SaaS app idea and I live streamed all of it because I wanted to get the most bang for my buck in terms of kind of spreading the word. So I could have just worked on it in isolation, but I knew like, okay, you have to work in public for things to be successful. You have to, people need to know what you're doing. So I thought, well, I need to write this code anyways. If I write the code in public, well, now I'm creating content at the same time that I'm getting the work done. So that seems like a kind of a good use of my time. So I was working on this SaaS app and people were tuning in and, and checking it out. And, and I kind of put together, I kind of thought like, okay, the focus of these streams will be like, we're doing a lot of TDD. We'll be doing a lot of stuff with view. And that's kind of what I was selling people on, right? Like this is what I think people are going to be excited to learn about. But what it turned out was I had sort of written my own like little homegrown CSS framework that uh, I'd been carrying around from project to project. And in the live streams, I was building the whole UI with this kind of custom CSS framework. And all the comments in the chat were always, what CSS framework is this? What CSS framework is this? What CSS framework is this? And it never even occurred to me that people would give a shit about like what classes I was putting in the HTML. You know what I mean? But everyone was more interested in this like, approach to building this UI with the CSS than they were in the TDD stuff or the view stuff. And that's what kind of motivated me to open source that CSS framework, which is now Tailwind CSS, which um, has grown into like a really big project to the point where uh, I'm working on that like full time now to grow the community around that and look for opportunities in the future to figure out how to monetize that in some way, maybe by like doing premium themes or some of the other things that people have done you know, with other UI tools, but I never would have even open sourced this thing at all if I hadn't been streaming myself working on this SaaS app and just people happen to care more about this CSS stuff that I never would have even occurred to me would have been interesting to people. Yeah, they were just more interested in that than the, than the stuff I expected them to be interested in. So that's just another good example of how like just working in public can uh, can really clue you into the stuff that your audience actually cares about. I can tell you with certainty, Adam, that another thing you do that's very interesting is just talk about the way that you do things. And there are a great many people who would buy a book if you wrote one about how to launch online courses and how to build an audience. Yeah, I can move into the the meta work of uh, selling how to sell on the internet. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's really my thing, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that I can uh, help other people sort of like follow this path and uh and hopefully learn a thing or two and hopefully be a little bit more successful uh with their own ventures well i'm glad i got the opportunity to have you on the podcast where you did just that thanks so much adam for coming on the show sharing your story and your knowledge with all of us can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to what's coming next from you and anything else you might share online yeah sure so um twitter is kind of where i hang out where i'm most active so i'm just adam wathen on twitter I have a personal website at adamwathen.me. Uh, I wrote a really in-depth blog post called, um, it was called like the $63,000 book launch that let me quit my job. 
that kind of outlined the entire process from like idea to launch for my first book with numbers and kind of all the emails that I sent and like how many subscribers received each email, like as much detail as I could possibly cram into it. Um, so if you're kind of curious about kind of seeing sort of like the blueprint for a book launch, you can check that blog post out on my website. I gave a talk at Microconf last year about nailing your first launch. So again, a lot of the same sort of stuff that we talked about here, but just kind of organized into a into a talk. So if you're interested in checking that out, I can get you the link to that for the show notes. I think if you just Google like Adam Wathen Microconf recap, you'll probably find it. CSS framework, like kind of thing that I'm working on the most right now is Tailwind CSS. Uh, so you can learn more about that at tailwindcss.com. I'm working on a, a free video course for that right now, actually, that I'm hoping to have out next month that'll kind of teach you how to design really professional looking UIs from scratch using Tailwind, even if you don't have a ton of CSS experience. So that's kind of, uh, yeah, doing a free video series for the first time in a while, which feels good because uh, I always have enjoyed putting out the free stuff probably more than the paid stuff. Yeah, that's that's probably it. That's maybe another thing is I host a podcast called Full Stack Radio, which is basically just, I use that as an excuse to pester experts with questions about things I'm trying to learn. <laughs> so uh, if you want to hear what I'm interested in and follow along with the uh, you know, learn some things about that. Check out fullstackradio.com. And I think that's probably it. All right, Adam. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.